Hello, my name's Paul Nightingale. I'm a senior associate in the commercial and projects team at Shoesmiths. Hello, my name's Joel Murphy, and I'm also a senior associate in the commercial and projects team at Shoesmiths. So welcome to the latest podcast in the ShoePod series. These sessions are designed to help our listeners understand the key components of a commercial contract. Today's topic is limitation on liability, which tends to be one of the most hotly negotiated points in a contract. Joel, can you give people a quick idea of why that's the case? Sure. Well, it's because this clause dictates the risk of claims from another party to the contract. It's usually intended to limit what a party's financial liability to the other for damages can be if something goes wrong in the course of the contract. Without it, in theory, there is no financial limit to the damages another party to the contract could recover. Damages could be so large that they might be enough to bankrupt a small or medium-sized company, for example. Yes, the clause also has knock-on effects for other parts of the contract, for example, the insurance clause. It's easier for companies to take a view on their insurance levels if it's clear what the upper financial risk might be for the contract. Agreed. So with that in mind, this is one of the clauses it's really crucial to get right and to help ensure that it's important. Everyone involved in the deal has a good base idea of how limitation clauses work and what to watch out for. Okay, let's start by looking at a typical limitation clause. A limitation clause will usually set out three things. First, the risks in the contract that the parties accept are not limited or are not able to be limited. Second, the risks that the parties accept, but with a cap on liability. And third, the risks each party excludes. Joel, can you tell us about number one, unlimited risks? Sure. So there are some liabilities that it's not possible to legally limit. It's probably not really necessary to kind of expressly call these out in the contract, but it's common practice for, for people to do so. And you'll see this in almost every limitation clause. So at the beginning of a limitation clause, there will usually be a list of risks the clause does not limit. For example, damages resulting from injury or death, damages resulting from fraud, and in the case of supply of goods contracts, damages from a party supplying goods without the right to actually do so, usually meaning the party didn't own the goods in the first place. In each of these cases, because the parties literally cannot limit the liabilities, this means there won't normally be any negotiation around this part of the clause. Thanks, Joel. So moving on to number two, which is risks the parties accept but with a cap. This is where the real negotiation will usually come in. These will be the risks that the parties accept are subject to a cap, but the cap is usually up for negotiation. The contract will usually cap a total liability, although you'll sometimes see specific liabilities called out and capped. And there may be some differences around whether the cap is an overall cap across the whole contract or is a cap for losses within each year. So these are things to be aware of and watchful for. We'll talk more about these points later. Yeah, that's right. So thinking about number three, which are the typical excluded risks, this refers to the types of loss the parties would want to totally exclude in the limitation clause. Commonly excluded types of loss include indirect loss, consequential loss and loss of profits. The reason these are excluded is to provide as much certainty as possible around each party's potential liability under the contract. Yeah, and these types of losses, uh, for example, indirect loss, consequential loss, loss of profits, can be difficult to estimate or anticipate at the outset of a contract, which would mean lots of uncertainty around the risk. Yeah, and one, one tip to point out here is that if you're excluding loss of profit, it should be excluded as a separate standalone type of loss, not as part of indirect or consequential losses. 
loss of profits is something most parties would want to exclude because it's hard to estimate what value the loss of profits might amount to. But some court cases have found a loss of profits is not indirect. So if you try to include it as a subset of loss under indirect or consequential losses, this might end up failing if your dispute goes to court. Yeah, and in general, it's better to specify each particular kind of loss that you want to exclude rather than simply relying on indirect and consequential losses. These terms are sometimes considered too vague or ambitious and may fail in a court dispute as not being certain or clear enough. Yeah, but although you do have to bear in mind there is a risk that the list may turn out to be incomplete, you don't want to list a whole load of excluded risks but inadvertently miss out on one that becomes important later. So to prevent this, business people within your organisation should work closely with lawyers to consider the list of risks which might be relevant to your business to ensure there's no gaps in the risk you want to exclude in the contract. Yeah. Um, now we're going to talk about negotiating the financial cap that we touched on earlier. Yes, yeah, so as a reminder, this is the cap that will apply for the risks in the contract that the parties accept, but which can't be excluded, so will need to be limited instead. Yeah, negotiating the value of a financial cap for the general risks in the contract is often the most heavily negotiated part of a limitation clause. The customer will want to ensure that it has a sufficient remedy if the supplier does something seriously wrong. For example, if the supplier does not perform the contract properly. Yeah, and on the other hand, the supplier will want to keep its own risk of loss in proportion to the value of the transaction. Agreed. So some common things to consider when negotiating a financial cap include an estimate of the total contract value, calculating a particular percentage of the contract value, for example, 100% of the contract value, 125%, etc., and the levels of the supplier's insurance. Yeah, and it's good to point out, I suppose, that since these are all business points, business people within your organisation should be equally as involved in kind of considering what an appropriate cap might be, as the lawyers are. Yeah, and so caps can take several forms. The simplest is a single figure that applies across the duration of the contract. Yeah, so for example, a general cap of a million pounds for all risks that can be limited. Yeah, and it may also be calculated as a percentage of the fee or of sums paid. You also often see a greater of scenario where the cap is the higher of a fixed sum and a percentage of a fee. Um, so this can be helpful where something goes wrong early in the contract, as the percentage of the fee paid by that point might not be sufficient to account for the losses at this stage. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose you might also see an annual cap, which is where um, a cap applies across each year of the contract, which can be beneficial in long contracts, so if, for example, five years or so, um, as it means the customer could still make a claim in later years of the contract, even if it's previously made a claim early, because it would not already have used up some of the liability cap. An annual cap can also serve as a compromise if one party is reticent about a particularly high overall figure, as the yearly cap might be a more acceptable limit can also reduce the risk for party leaving the contract early, even if that party's perhaps already had a bad experience because the party will know if it's still able to claim up to a certain amount for each year of the remaining contracts if, if things would continue to go wrong. Yeah, and the cap might also be structured as applying to each particular claim or could be an overall cap for all claims. That's right, yeah. Another thing you'll see quite often is for parties to try to link the cap to the supplier's insurance limits, but this isn't always as simple as it sounds. Uh, not all claims will be insured, and there may be some types of loss that are excluded by a supplier's insurance policy that the customer is perhaps not aware of. Um, suppliers might also argue that their insurance needs to cover claims from other customers as well, so the total of their insurance should not be just seen as equivalent to the customer's cap in a particular contract. 
Yeah, agreed. And, and it's also worth looking out for the difference between a reference to sums paid and sums paid and payable when calculating the cap. If you're linking the cap to only sums paid, this can be more beneficial to the paying party, since if the breach occurs near the start of the contract, the amount required may be significantly lower than if it's linked to sums paid and payable, which might include all sums due at the time of the point the damages are being calculated, and not just all sums already paid. Yeah, that's right. And another thing worth remembering is that damages awarded may not actually bear any relation to the fee. They may have and have been much higher in some cases. So it's not always as simple as saying something like the cap should be equivalent to the overall fee that's been paid. Yeah. So one one other thing I thought we could discuss is super caps. Can you explain quickly for everyone what a super cap is? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, so super cap is usually where there's a general limit on liability. But as well as that, there'll be a separate higher cap for a particular one-off risk. So, for example, there might be a general cap of one million in a cloud services contract, but in a scenario where there may be some added data protection risk, for example, um, so where some personal data might be being processed by the cloud services provider, the parties might negotiate a, a special cap for data protection risk, say at two million compared to the general cap of one million or five million, for example. Yeah, exactly. And super caps can sometimes be useful as a means of getting to that compromise position. Uh, parties might agree there are certain risks that are particularly high, given the nature of the transaction, as, as you've just suggested. And um, But they might not want to apply a general cap at that, that high value, that two, five million, um, across all the types of loss for the contract. Yeah, so what types of risk might be subject to a super cap? So typically, um, most often it would be things like data protection, confidentiality, intellectual property claims. But it really does depend, I suppose, on the types of risks that are specific to the particular deal. Yeah, and, and those risks that you identified just then are also sometimes types of loss that a party will try to have an unlimited cap for. Yeah, and the, the parties might also look to apply specific indemnities for those things as well, which is something we'll come on to in a moment. Yeah, a good, a good illustration of how there can be lots of points to consider when negotiating a financial cap and a limitation clause. Definitely, yeah. Uh, generally, I'd say that although it can seem appealing to draft a complex cap that treats various types of losses in the contract differently, it is usually better to aim for that straightforward liability cap structure if you can. Yeah, agreed. And because the simpler the cap is, the less room there will be for misunderstanding at any point, And the party's position should be clearer if it comes to a dispute. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we did just mention uh, the interplay between the limitation clause and indemnities in a, a contract. Those are separate things. It's probably important to be conscious of how they interact. Uh, Paul, can you perhaps remind people of what an indemnity is? Yeah, so an indemnity is essentially a commitment by a party that it will pay all the losses another party incurs for a particular situation. So that means that all the losses can be recouped by the damaged party. That's it. And indemnities can still be subject to the limits on liability, although you will often see that parties try to exempt them. Parties usually try to include indemnities around high risk points, uh, such as third party claims about intellectual property infringement and data protection. That's because in those situations, um, the parties may want reassurance that there is no limit on what they can claim back in the event of a loss. Yeah, and on, on the other hand, it does increase the risk and uncertainty around the contract for the indemnities to be exempt from the limitation of liability. So the parties might want to make all of the indemnities subject to the liability cap or just some of them subject to the cap. This is a point to consider depending on the type of contract that you're looking at and the importance and value of the transaction to the business. Yeah, and it is, is a really good point. And if, if 
so people listening would like to hear more about how indemnities work uh, there is a separate podcast by our colleagues caroline chester and charlotte robinson which is available now that, that really looks at indemnities in a bit more detail um, but as a summary what what should people listening today take away as the key points around limitation clauses paul so i would say first of all work within the business and with your lawyers to identify risks at the outset think about what could go realistically wrong with the contract how much might that cost how likely it is that the thing could happen um, and what resources you'll need to deal with the risk if it arises yeah they're, they're really good kind of questions to ask yourself and after you've identified those risks make sure you're excluding completely all the risks you can't accept as a, for example the other side's loss of profit as we mentioned earlier yeah and on the risks you think you can accept which in practice is normally the majority of the risks, um, think carefully about how you would like to cap those risks. Are there some risks where the chance of it occurring could be quite high and the cost could be particularly large? In that case, you might want to have unlimited liability from the other side. Are you comfortable with a general liability cap across all risks? Is there anything you would like a super cap for? Um, are there any risks you want to carve out as indemnities that aren't subject to the cap? Yeah, and also bear in mind that interplay with the insurance provisions and try to engage your insurance team, your revenue recognition team early on so that you really have a good idea of the figures you might be working with in respect of that kind of the financial liability you're looking at. Yeah, agreed. And overall, always try to give the limitation clause um, a lot of consideration early on in the process and leave enough time and space um, to really consider it with your business and with your lawyers. It's a really important provision in the contracts and you want to ensure that you have a good position as you enter into the cooperation or the transaction. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Well, that brings us to the end of today's session, I think, which we hope you found it informative, of course. But if you need any assistance with anything we've touched on today, please don't hesitate to get in touch with Paul or I. Yep, so from Joel and me, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.